Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of Rabbi Avi Havivi's weekly Sidur class. Aleinu consists of two paragraphs, Aleinu and Alkain, and we will talk about or we can talk about, are they really one unit? Is it one prayer or is this really two entirely separate units that have been put together. Okay, we'll get to that. Um, Alenu has a long, complicated, interesting history. We assume it's like, you know, because we conclude every service with it, and because in the liberal movements, we tend to sing it aloud communally, Alenu Lashave, with a melody that's probably from Sulzer or one of those people. Um, we assume it's like, oh, it's always been here. It's a big deal. It's a core prayer. Um, in fact, um, I'm sure you all know, when's the other time of year when we say Aleinu? Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah. That is actually its original locus in the Sidur. So in the year, let's just say 1000, no one said Aleinu at the end of every service. Aleinu was recited only on Rosh Hashanah as part of Malchuyot, remember the three sections in Mushaf, Zichronot, uh, Malchuyot, Zichronot, and Shofrot. So Aleinu was part of the um, poetic introduction to the verses, still where it is today. And then it was also said on Yom Kippur. And that's the original uh, Sidur locus of the Aleinu prayer. The Aleinu prayer was not said three times a day, every day of the week, 21 times per week, the way we do it, okay? That, so Aleinu migrated from high holidays somewhere in the Middle Ages, maybe, maybe, maybe 13th century. And there are sort of theories about that, about why. We'll get to that. So Aleinu originally was not an everyday prayer, it's only on high holidays, in the same place in the high holidays with which we're familiar with it. Somehow it migrated into the into the weekday sidur and came to be seen as this thing that you're supposed to say every day and concludes every service. Okay, so we'll we can come back to that after we're we're going to spend some time looking at the Aleinu and trying to understand it. So that's just a little bit of intro. And Aleinu was probably written in late antiquity, which means Talmud ish times there are other manuscripts of it from outside of the sidur from mystical literature i'll come back to that later um the later sources the medieval sources attribute it to rav who was a first generation amora in babylonia talmudic amora meaning first half of the 200s of the common era but there's no mention of that in the Talmud. So on the one hand, it's possible that that's true and it's just a traditional attribution. On the other hand, it's also entirely possible that that is a much later attribution to say, oh, it was written by Rav hundreds and hundreds of years ago. There's no evidence in Talmudic sources themselves that it's actually written by Rav. Okay, Plenty of prayers that are mentioned in the Talmud, and Aleinu is not one of them, right? So it's from 
late antiquity, somewhere in Talmudic times. If you look at the earliest Sidurim, like Rav Amram and Rav Sa'adya from the 800s and the 900s, um, its place in the Sidur is Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, somewhere around maybe the 13th-ish century, it migrates into the everyday Sidur. Um, and I remind everyone that the group mind that wrote and edited the Sidur never has, never leaves notes of the committee discussion, right? Mm-hmm. They don't have that. And so we're always left to speculate why, like why did this migrate from a high holiday only prayer to an everyday prayer? Okay. So we'll come to that. So let's look at Alain. Okay. And as usual, we'll do our word by word thing. Slim Shalom, page 83, Sim Shalom, page 160, or whatever seat where you're in. Everyone knows how to find Alainu. It's an overlearned prayer because we sing it. So everyone knows how to find it. Okay. So first of all, I just want you to not look at the words. I just want you to listen to it for a moment. And then I'm going to say to you, what kind of literature is this? Just listen. Aleinu l'shabeach la'adon hakol, latet gedula liotzer breshi, shelo asanu kigoyeha ratzot, velo sahmanu kimishpachot hadama. What kind of literature is this? Poetry. It's a poem. You hear the rhythm of it. Now, our sometimes our Sidur editor helps you see what's a poem. In this particular case, they don't. Okay, so it's it's typeset as prose, but it could very easily have been typeset in poetry, and then you would have seen that. So you hear the rhythm. Four words. Four words. Right? So this is the first part of the Aleinu is a poem. This style of Jewish poetry, liturgical poetry of four word lines or half lines, depending on how you count lines and half lines, um, is very early ish in, in post-biblical Jewish poetry around the fourth or fifth century of the common era. Um, we only have a few examples of this because Jewish liturgical poetry came to be much more complicated. So poems like Adon Olam and Yigdal, which are more like, uh, you know, 11th or 12th century, um, have a much more complicated poetic scheme. They're, they're, you can count syllables and it has a system of short vowels and long vowels, right? But early piyut or early Jewish liturgical poetry, the simplest form was these four words. And the other thing that characterizes, that's the rhythm, okay? These four word lines or half lines. And the, we'll call that quantitative, right? Uh, it's not about syllables and it's not about longer short vowels. It's just about four words. Um, and the qualitative hallmark of early biblical poetry like this is parallelism, same as in the, um, that we're familiar with from, um, the Psalms, right? We must, um, praise the master of all, give greatness to the creator of the fashioner of creation. 
Shelo asanu kigoye haratzot. He did not make us like the other nations. Vilo samanu kimishpachot adama. He did not make us like the other nations. So parallelism means the two halves of the line are balanced. They can be synonymous. I could be saying similar things in the same way, like Shelo asanu kigoye haratzot. Vilo samanu kimishpachot adama is two ways of saying you made us different than the other nations. It's synonymous parallelism, right? Sometimes parallelism is um, the second half of the line intensifies the first half of the line, not only, but also. And sometimes parallelism in Jewish poetry is um, antithetical. That's the wrong word, but opposites, right? I might say uh, uh, he... He is very handsome. Everyone else is ugly. Okay, that would be, um, I can't think of the word, but it's synonymous, um, antonymous, right? Opposites, right? So when there's parallelism, either I could be saying a similar thing, two different ways, or part B could be intensifying part A, or sometimes I'll contrast part A and part B. But it's balanced balanced in terms of number of words. Um, this early piyut does not have balancing of syllables or vowels. It's just number of words. Can anyone think of any other examples of this type of poetry with the four words? From the morning sidur. Oh. How about this one? El baruch gedol de'ah hechinu fa'al zahorei chama. Tov Yatsar Kavod Lishmo, Melrot Natan Svivot Uzo. So that's also that same 4-4 pattern. Okay. Um, a little bit more complicated. Shabbat morning in the same slot. El Adon Al Kol Hamaasim. Baruch Umvorach Befi Kol Neshama. Godlo Vituvo Male Olam. Da'adutuna Sobavim Hodo. So this is a very early, late antiquity, Talmudic times form of um, biblical poetry. There's a huge amount of it that was written by a guy named Yanai. And the poetry of Yanai was totally lost. We know we have lots of PU team in our Sidur on high holidays. There's very little by Yanai. It was totally lost. And then a ton of it was found in the Cairo Geniza. And Yanai was amazing. He lived maybe in the 4th century, 5th century. We don't really know. And he wrote liturgical poems that have nine different parts to them with different meter schemes and different rules, nine different parts. Stay with me on this for every Shabbat morning of the Torah reading cycle in Eretz Yisrael, which was a three and a half year Torah reading cycle. So for every Parsha of three and a half years, Yanai wrote a poem that was said in the Amida, interleaved into the Amida, where there were nine different sections, each one of which had its own poetic rules and which somehow referred to the Parsha of that day. In fact, in late antiquity, 4th century, 5th century, 6th century, 7th century, that was the function of the Chazan. The Chazan didn't just have a nice voice, but the Chazan was a poet. And you can imagine... If your anticipation is, um, it's like the sermon, but mega, okay? You can imagine what your anticipation is coming to shul 
if the expectation is what new composition will the Chazan have composed and will chant this morning based on this week's Parsha, right? So the ancient synagogue Chazan in these times was a poet. And usually these poems, Yanai's poems have lots of Midrashim in them. So we learn a lot about Midrash. Okay. It was kind of a sermon, but it was not a talk sermon. It was a poetic composition that the Chazan chanted. By the way, sometimes they were in Aramaic. And also, by the way, apparently Christians had this tradition in Aramaic of liturgical poetry that was chanted in the church in the 500s, 600s, 700s, whatever, you know, sort of late antiquity-ish. Um, and there was church poetry just like this in Aramaic and also in Greek in the ancient Near East, not in Greece, but in the, the part of our part of the world that was Greek speaking. So apparently the, just as we would say today, oh, all religions have a sermon at their service. The rabbi gives a sermon and the priest or minister in Christianity gives a sermon and the imam in the mosque gives a sermon, you know, giving a sermon is like a thing that's a part of the service. Apparently, liturgical poetry written and chanted for the occasion by some talented poet singer was a thing in this era. Whether you went to a Greek speaking church, an Aramaic speaking church, an Aramaic speaking synagogue or a Hebrew speaking synagogue. It's quite a fascinating thing. And the heyday of this is sort of, uh, you know, fifth century through ninth century or something like that. And then people stopped doing it as part of the service. Okay. They continued to write liturgical poetry, but it was not interleaved into the service. So I find that to be just a fascinating thing that this was just sort of a cultural thing that houses of worship did at that time across cultures. Michael. Yes, it, it sounds like since each of these uh, team was related to the parasha, it almost sounds like a forerunner of a haftarah or something. Something. Well, there was also a haftarah. I mean, there were just various ways of teaching material in shul, communicating the tradition. Alan. You said that the cycle was three and a half years. Yes, in Eretz Israel, it was three and a half years. How How does that work? Uh, you'd have to, we, we know what their cycle is because, um, um, so in brief, there was, you probably know there was a Babylonian Talmud and a Eretz Israeli Talmud or Jerusalem Talmud. There were communities in Eretz Israel and in Babylonia in the 200s, 300s, 400s, 500s. They were kind of rival communities, um, in the end, probably because of Christianity and Christian persecution in the land of Israel, the Jewish community in Eretz Israel declined. The Jewish community in Babylonia flourished, and they ended up becoming the culturally dominant force in the Jewish world back then, 1500 years ago. So the Sidur, the tradition that we have is the Babylonian tradition. Okay. Um, the Sidur tradition of Eretz Israel was mostly lost, except the Egyptian community accepted the guidance of the Eretz Israel tradition. So most of what we know about the um, 
Eretz Yisraeli liturgy, let's say from the year 600-ish, is from the Cairo Geniza. So there were no living communities in general that continued carrying it on. There was the Egyptian community, and we have those things in the Cairo Geniza. And now I have forgotten, I apologize, Alan, what was your question? Well, I appreciate that. I'm sure this is somehow, this is somehow, I'm sure what I'm saying is somehow at least tangentially relevant. What was the question? But the question is, why three and a half years? Oh, so anyway, so 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 the Eretz Israeli cycle, we know what it is from the Cairo Geniza. Thank you, Alan. So they preserve, there are fragments of prayers there. Uh, by the way, most of Yanai, what we have of Yanai, that Python who was mostly lost, is from the Cairo Geniza, right? And there are other texts from the Cairo Geniza, and people have actually reconstructed what was the three and a half year cycle. There were actually three and a half years of Haftarot, okay? That has been reconstructed by scholars from Cairo Geniza fragments. I can't tell you more about that in detail because I don't know anything about it. But uh, it's how long it was. You might say, what is the next question? What about, what holiday would that create a, create a problem with? Um, Simchat Torah. What about Simchat Torah? What did they do on Simchat Torah? So the answer is, Larry, do you know the answer to the question? I studied, we, Marshall and Joel and I and Daniel studied it in, in, in Megillah, in, um, I suck at Megillah, but I forget. The answer is Simchat Torah did not exist. So in the year 600, let us say, or 400, there was no such holiday as Simchat Torah, right? Simchat Torah is based on an annual reading of the Babylonian cycle, and we're not sure exactly when it came to be a thing, that on the second day of Shemini Atzeret in the diaspora, there is a holiday called Simchat Torah, where we celebrate finishing the Torah and starting it again on the annual cycle. So, sorry, I didn't say this. Babylonians were on the annual cycle. That's why we do the annual cycle. I forgot to connect that. Because the Babylonian tradition won out. The Eretz Yisraeli tradition um, came to fall into non-use. And we know about it mostly from the Cairo Geniza. And there was no Simchas Torah. Simchas Torah, I don't remember the century, but Simchas Torah becomes a thing in post-Talmudic times, early Middle Ages, post-Talmudic, maybe Gaonic, okay? So why was it three and a half years? Why did they divide the sedras that way? Uh, I don't know, because that they, it was their received tradition to divide the sedras that way in three and a half years. So what that means is it was not like, this always needs to be explained to conservative congregations, it was not like our triennial cycle, where they read the first third and the next year, the second third and the third third. That means they, they read Breshit Bara Elohim once every three and a half years and it ran consecutively. To, to us, this seems weird because we're just used to, Oh, we study part of our Jewish thing. You know, we, we tell our Christian friends, our, our non-Jewish friends when they come to shul and simchas and something, you know, we read through the entire Torah, the whole five books of Moses, once every year. And that, and, and we're just kind of used to that and take that for granted. That's Babylonian, and um, that's what won out. But that's not what they did, in mission, for example, in Mishnah times. I don't know, maybe in Mishnah times they already did that in Babylonia, possibly. I don't know. But that was not, which just means the reading cycle, 
was not fixed. Everyone with me? Yeah. So, and, and by the way, we know what those 100 and it was 150 plus Cedras was. It was about 152, I think, plus holidays. So when it was a holiday, you did not, you just like we do, you interrupted and you didn't read the regular Parsha. So it ended up including holidays and Rosh Chodesh's somehow or other added up to approximately three and a half years. There's nothing sacred about three and a half. It's just in terms of their Siddharim, which is what they called the Parsha, it took three and a half years to get through the whole Torah. Okay. Michael Ozer, I think you're raising a hand. Yeah, well, you know, there was such a, uh, it's just sort of interesting to, to hear this explanation. We had, uh, Temple Bavam had a very interesting, uh, travel thing last night on, on, uh, Jews of Iran and the, um, the presenter, uh, uh, was a Persian who, uh, had, you know, almost gave like a scholarly talk about all the different traditions and, uh, that came in the Persian Jewish community yep. historically. Yep. And, you know, so there are just all these differences and we're used to the Ashkenazi tradition, but, but who's to say that that, I mean, that was not the only one. So, Correct. uh, Correct. we're know, just so used I, to that and we take for granted, like, Oh, this is how it's always been. Everyone did it. Right. That way. And you go to a Moroccan shul, you go to a Persian shul, you go to a Yemenite shul. It's different. Right. Absolutely. You see this more, in Israel, right? Because Israel really has many, many small synagogues where these different communities that have come, to, you know, come to live in one place sort of preserve their traditions. You see this much less so in America, right? And some of those traditions have fallen into total disuse. Like, for example, no one, as far as I know, no living Jewish community does the Eretz Yisraeli three and a half year cycle period, end of story, okay? I have no doubt, I have no doubt that when the conservative movement decided to go triennial because they decided the Torah readings were too long for people to sit through and da-da-da, I am sure there was a discussion about how should we do it? Should we go back to the old Eretz Yisraeli triennial cycle? It's called the triennial cycle even though it was three years plus, okay? Uh, I, I have no doubt that there was a debate about that and that people said, well, no, then we'll only read the story of Joseph once every three and a half years, and that will not be very edifying for our communities. We need to, and we want to stick with the rest of the, and then we'll be out of sync with the whole rest of the Jewish world who says it's Parshat Balak this weekend, right? And, and we're out of step right now with Israel because of holidays. We're going to catch up in a couple of weeks. Um, re, we're going to be in sync with them again in a couple of weeks. Um uh, so I'm sure there was debate about that. I'm sure the answer was no, we should keep it. We should keep up with the rest of the Jewish world with the Parsha. And the way to do that is to divide the Parsha into thirds. But I'm sure there was discussion about that. By the way, then there was discussion within the conservative movement over the last decade about developing a triennial Haftorah cycle. Okay. So that in year one, the Haftorah would not necessarily be the same as the one in year two. It wouldn't be dividing the Haftorah into three, like we divide the Torah portions. It would be a different Haftorah year one and from year two, because since the Haftorah somehow coordinates with the Parsha, if you're only reading a triennial cycle, sometimes the Haftorah coordinates with something in the Parsha that you didn't read if you're on the triennial cycle. So it doesn't always make sense. Everyone follow me on that? 
Okay, because you left out the part of the parsha that it connects with. So someone went to the trouble in the rabbinical assembly. They actually developed a triennial cycle of haftarot. The law committee of the conservative movement voted on it, and they voted it down. They voted not to adopt it. Um, I, I'm not involved in all that. You can ask Rabbi Klickfeld. I'm sure he knows much, much more about it than I do. Um, I'm assuming part of why they voted it down is a nice thing about Haftorahs is inviting our teenagers or others back next year. You'll do this Haftorah next year. And it's a way to get people to come to shul. And if we said, you'll do your Haftorah again three years from now, okay, that would be different. So there's, for whatever reason, I don't, I'm again, not privy to the discussion. They did develop a triennial cycle of, of, I guess, 150-ish different haftarot. It's also, a, they were shorter. It's also a great, op- a great opportunity to teach more sections of profits, right? We would keep be, the haftarot plethora in business. Yes, correct. We'd be, we would be, we would have three times as many, three times as much prophetic passages that we'd have the opportunity to teach people, which is the purpose of the haftarah, right? It's oh, like, oh, you're reading the Torah, but let's actually have like prophets as part of the adult education lesson also every Shabbat morning. So it would triple the opportunity for that. And they voted it down. That's all I know about it. We should invite Rabbi Klickfeld as a guest for like, you know, five to 10 minutes once to tell us about that discussion. I'm sure he knows all about it and the ins and outs. By the way, just because it was voted down, I just want to say one more thing. Just because it was voted down doesn't mean it's not going to come back. Okay. So doesn't mean it's never going to happen. For the moment, it was, they investigated it. Someone went to the trouble of hunting up other prophetic passages that would somehow connect to the triennial cycle. I'm sure that was an awful lot of work. Okay. Um, and then they presented it and they voted not to accept it. I'm sure there are people who would want to do it still. Yeah. So we'll see what happens. Michael. I, I just think the, uh, yeah. it must have been the, uh, Hazan Union back in the seventh uh, century objected to having to be so creative every week. Well, that was the talent. You know, you had a synagogue poet, and I'm, and I'm sure, by the way, and Yanai was famous, I guess, in his day. And I'm sure every shul didn't have a Yanai. And, you know, maybe there are shuls that said, oh, we're going to do the thing that Yanai wrote for three years ago. Uh, we, we, again, we, we don't, we don't have synagogue bulletins from the year 500. So we don't really know what they thought about this. By the way, um, something that scholars say is this poetry is in really complicated piyut Hebrew. You know, that poetic Hebrew on high holidays, like the really hard ones. And even if you know Sidur Hebrew in, in general, you say, what does this mean? I don't understand a word of, of this because it's very hard poetic Hebrew. So people say, Oh, did everyone in shul actually understand? The PU team, you know, these were like fishermen and farmers and whatnot. Did the common people actually understand it? Who was this written for? Right. Was it just to be fancy, but there was only like two people in shul who understood it, the chazan and the rabbi? <laughs> or were there people who understood it? Because um, there's a lot of midrash in it. So it was an attempt to sort of teach midrash. Um, so again, we don't have contemporary you know, historical, this is what life is like kind of accounts. So we don't really know. Yeah. Alan. 
Right. And then Terry, who's had her hand up. Alan, then Terry. Sorry, I can't see the hand, Terry, in the back because the hand is a little cut off. I apologize. Alan, then Terry. Okay. Just my understanding is you only need six votes to have a validated option to be able I, to do this. You know, we have to ask. I'm going to cut you off. We have to ask Rabbi Klickfeld. I have no idea what happened in the law committee. Okay. I'll, I'm going to check. With, I, I, he has a busy schedule. I will check with him. <coughs> Tell me the lowdown on what happened. Uh, or we could ask Rabbi Dorf. He'll know also. Ask Rabbi Dorf in shul on Shabbos morning. And mm-hmm. and is it really dead or is it going to come back? Or, you know, we'll we'll find out about that. Terry. When um, when there was the uh, three and a half year triennial. Yeah. Eretz Yisrael cycle. Yeah. Were the Haftarot broken down the way they are now? No, there were 150 Haftarot. Okay. And the, the do you happen to know if the suggestion was somehow comparable with those Haftarot? I'll ask Rabbi Klickfeld. Okay, other question. Um, So apparently, I just want to say, apparently today, we're not actually going to be, we're not actually going to start studying the (laughs) Alenu at all, other than to say the beginning of it is a poem built in this ancient Piyut style of four-word half-lines that are in parallelism. We did that much, which suggests, by the way, that Alenu was written sometime in late antiquity. Late antiquity is a way of story that's sort of saying Talmudic times up to the before Gaonic times. So probably written somewhere between 200 and 800. Okay. Now my other question. Yeah. Avi, would it be appropriate and would you be interested in sometime soon taking your favorite Yanai and teaching it with us? You asked me that before, Terry, on a previous cycle. So so here's what I'm going to tell you about that. Um, a scholar named Laura Lieber, who I think is at Duke, who has her PhD from HUC in Cincinnati, did an incredible thing. She took all of the on IPU team for Brayshit, by the way, all the on-IPU team are, connect, are collected in some Israeli book by a scholar with footnotes. She took all the PU team for the book of Genesis, put them together, translated them into English with all kinds of introductions and notes. It's like, oh, my God. Um, she didn't do it for the other four books because it's like, you know, how many people are going to buy a copy of that book besides me? So I have a copy of that book. So... If you could remind me, Terry, around Simcha's Torah season of that, and then I will try to pick a good one because it's still all fragmentary. We don't have all of Yanai. There are some partial where we just have little snippets because it's from the Cairo Geniza and it's like little snippets of paper, parchment, papyrus, whatever. So I'll, I will look at the book. I'll try to find a good gray sheet parsha that has a good sample. And I will bring that to the class. Okay. So ask me again as we're heading towards Breshi. Javi, can I ask you a general question? Yep. Um, is it possible, I don't think you mentioned this, that the two different paragraphs were um, introduced separately or were they introduced at the same time? You are so way ahead. You, okay. Larry, that question is so way ahead. Um, we We don't know. The short answer is we don't know. Right. We do know that in high holidays, the, the, you know, the earliest, um, hour, 
attestation of this is high holidays. We do know that in high holidays, they come together, right? Aleinu is uh, uh, followed by Alkain. But we'll see that literarily, the short answer, Larry, is literarily, um, there's a, most of the first paragraph is poetic and Alkain is much less poetic. So at the very least, we could say they seem to be written differently, which presumes by different people, which means they probably were not originally written as a set. When they came together as a set, we don't know. We know that by high holidays, right, in Amram or Saadia in the ninth century, they're already a set, right? So someone had already decided that they belong together, even though literarily, in terms of literary style, they seem like separate creations. That I'll, I'll, I'll say that much. Okay. Oh, well, sorry. I did a lot of pontificating and we didn't really study very much Alenu. So next week, I promise we will start really digging into Alenu. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.